today on Backroom Politics. Scandals, scandals, and more scandals between the IRS and Benghazi and the AP. Eric Holder can't seem to get out of his own way. We're going to talk about that. The president last week makes a huge security speech. Apparently, America is safe again. That's according to President Obama. That and more subpoenas going out about Benghazi. This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. everybody out there in Radio Land, this is the best political roundtable you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left is the former eight-term member of Congress serving Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello. How are you? Did you have a good memorial? I, I did. How about you? I did. Oh, that's good. And to my 11 o'clock, as he is every Tuesday, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here. Uh, glad to have you. To my 12 o'clock. She is the former House Committee House Committee Counsel on Homeland Security under Benny Thompson, Obama appointee as General Counsel for the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Kraft. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. Glad to have you here. And to my right, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, and a very distinguished and relaxed fellow. From the Stimson Center, he is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Yeah, uh, I'm feeling relaxed. Yeah, you look relaxed. That whole time in Bahama looks good on you. I'm impressed. So much to get to. It is just a plethora. You know, you take a week off and then just everything blows up. And when we talk about stuff going to hell in a handbasket, well, the administration's got their own handbasket to carry this stuff in. Breaking, oh, go ahead, Bob. And you also notice the handbasket has a hole in it. Now, apparently, they they can't stop the the <laughs> leakage coming out of this. Uh, it, it, there are so many things we're going to talk about today. Uh, we want to start off, start off uh, with some uh, breaking news coming out of Washington D.C. It appears that a House committee is going to start an investigation on the handling of both the IRS and the AP issue by Attorney General Eric Holder. Namely, how forthcoming uh, the Attorney General was in dealing with uh, the situations regarding the IRS and the AP subpoenas. Uh, Congressman Allen, I'll start with you. It just seems that every time you think it can't rain any harder in the White House, more rain comes. This seems to be the never-ending hurricane, Congressman Allen. Well, Eric Holder must get tired of the great cloud that's hovering over his head as he wanders around like 
What was the name of the character in the owl cap strip? Oh my gosh, Joe Basilic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he he just he just can't win for losing. Uh, time will tell whether this more is being made of all of this than it deserves. My guess is that if we were doing anything important in this town, this would not be a big story. But but. Bob Hines, you asked many Republicans, they're saying quite the opposite. They're saying this is important. This is a big story. This is almost abuse of power. This is almost uh, lack of coordination by the White House. Uh, there's a lack of control on cabinet members. Uh, Bob Hines, this is a serious story to Republicans. I think, it, I think both the questions about First Amendment rights with the media I think the uh, Internal Revenue, both of these things are big stories. I don't know uh, to the, ex the extent that the Attorney General is directly involved, should have been, or was, and hasn't been talking about it, or what the situation is with him personally. But he is in charge uh, of some of the, re of the people who are obviously uh, have been doing some things people ought, ought not to be doing in the government. Uh, did and he, it's, it's so to me, it looks to, it looks to me like Holder is going to have to have answer some questions that he hasn't answered yet. Whether how significant it is, I don't know. But the the, the two underlying matters are serious matters. Denise Krepp, I, I mean, the, the House obviously under Republican leadership is obviously very very concerned with the lack of control being handled by senior administrative officials inside the Obama administration. It, it, does this have traction in the House specifically with Oversight Committee and even Judiciary? Well, I'm going to go back to what Congressman Ellen said. It, it, time is going to tell, and the reason I say that is because Congressman Issa keeps starting investigations and starting investigations and starting investigations. Well, he's, when, he's had a reputation of doing well, that. Well, he has, and the question I would have That's is, the point. is, you know, is when are you going to finish these investigations, and how do you, you know, what... Where does this fall within your group of investigations that you've already started? Alan Moore, the Senate's obviously got to be watching this very closely. Is is has, has the House basically come off the reservation when it comes to these types of investigations? Is it, as some Democrats have said, a witch hunt on the Obama administration? Well, two weeks ago around this table, I characterized what had happened to the White House as a shitstorm, as having uh, hit them. Uh, and Thank God we're a family program too, it, Alan. And it still is. Um, now, are the Republicans likely to overplay their hand? They have a history of uh, doing that. Are they doing but that now? I don't think they're doing that yet because this is very serious stuff. And the, the Senate also is paying attention and involved with with uh, we're with regard to the IRS, the uh, the Senate Finance Committee that oversees the IRS and the and the, the Department of Treasury, chaired by Montana Senator Max Baucus, is also investigating what went on at the IRS. That is very serious stuff. And with regard to the press piece, you've you've got this irony. You've got press people who, for four years, have been how do we put this in a polite, family-friendly way, kissing the backside of this uh, president and his administration, a little bit embarrassed about it, and now all of a sudden you have a normally divided press suddenly united in saying, oh my gosh, 
what are you doing to us, our business, and the way we conduct our business? So they are rising up against the administration, with Eric Holder being right there in primary target, but his good friend and consistent supporter of the president right there next to him. This is the real deal. Congressman Al. Well, I learned something in, in office. I get really nervous when the press was being nice to me because they inevitably get to a point where they say, we've got to balance this out, and then they will savage you. So I think uh, that uh, what Alec said, uh, there's a lot of truth to the fact that uh, they're going to come down harder on this than they might have otherwise if they hadn't been fairly nice to the president in the past. Still, I make the argument that time will tell whether these are as serious as they are. The, the, the possibility that they are is there. I mean, you just take these raw and uh, you should be concerned. But uh, but but it's a little early to to draw that conclusion. I think. But Bob Hines, it it it, it seems, and some of the observers have noticed that the Republicans in the Senate are letting the Republicans in the House drive this train. Is that the right approach? Should the Senate not be more involved? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Senate not holding, uh, you know, you know, hearings at the same time. Uh, you know, let the Senate do it. it. The Senate right now is getting ready to deal with the immigration bill, which is a very, very significant piece of legislation. They're apparently going to begin uh, on the floor debate next week. And, uh, you know, that's a good thing for them to be working on. The House is going to ask the questions. If they, if they don't ask enough questions, I'm sure the Senate will, will weigh in. But I think the Senate is doing what it should do. It's legislating. So the, so the House is going to sit around playing... Raymond Burr, uh, while the Senate does the work of the Congress. Well, my my view is when the Senate sends the immigration bill over to the House, then the House can get to work on that too. There's nothing stopping them from getting to work on it now if they wanted to, but they're too busy, you know, taking pot shots at the White House. Well, they need they don't need to be holding any any hearings right now. Right now, what they need to be doing is uh, getting their own immigration bill. In, in place. We, we're getting away from what we were talking about, but the fact of the matter is the House needs to have an immigration bill because if you're going to go to conference, you need a bill, you need a bill, you need two bills to deal with. Well, then you and I agree. The House has got some serious got, work to do. It's got damn serious work to do. But, but, but Denise, that does not take away what the Oversight Committee is going to do with, with Chairman Eisen and then actually looking for answers in all these scandals, including the IRS, the AP subpoenas, and even Benghazi. Right, but the question I've got, Justin, is how many folks has Chairman Issa just hired? Because if you're doing at least five to ten investigations at the same time, you're going to have to dedicate at least five to ten people per investigation so that you can sift through the amount of paperwork that's just been dumped on your desk. So how, if you are the chief of staff for Chairman Issa, do you prioritize all of this? And by the way, this isn't everything that they're doing on the Hill. I mean, you've got immigration, you've got gun control, and oh, by the way, let's not forget about some budgets. Let's not forget about some other important issues like what's going on about sexual harassment. I mean, where does all of this fit big picture into their strategy? And right now, I don't think Chairman Ice has got a strategy. I think what he wants is a newspaper article about himself that says, I'm doing something. Alan Moore, do you agree with this, that Chairman Ice is basically taking a shotgun approach? It's basically whatever sticks to the wall sticks. I don't. I, I, I think that Denise made a good point about just staff limitations. He's been on Benghazi. 
for weeks. IRS presented itself, uh, and, and, and the Ways and Means Committee, which is, at, is the oversight committee for the IRS and the Treasury, but it was also trying to write tax reform legislation with its staff. It's not normally involved in big investigative enterprises. It doesn't have a staff that's trained for that, so it's an interesting kind of challenge. They're taking a look at what the IRS is up to, and ISA, who has uh, considerable resources and an investigative title and agenda, has jumped into that one and then pres and, 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 is, and, and is expanding it a bit. Um, but it, it's hard to know whether he's acting excessively or inappropriately. He certainly has shown an inclination in the past to do that. He's also learned some lessons. So I think we have to watch and not, and not be premature in concluding exactly how this will play out or what the objectives are. There's an enormous vulnerability that the White House has, and ISIS is trying to tease that out and also take a look at this whole question of the investigation of the AP and the Fox News reporter, James Rosen, which creates a different set of particular challenges. You know, we, 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 there's, a, there's a little known organization in, in, in Congress called the Office of Congressional Investigations. We have not heard a lot out of them, but Denise, you've worked with that organization before. Is this something now that OCI may be more engaged with to support some of the oversight committee's efforts? They may, but it, it's really going to be up to the chairman. I mean, the chairman wants his own staff, his or her own staff. So ICE is going to want to direct this. The question is going to be, on the Democratic side, is what does Cummings do? Cummings was pulled off of House TNI because he is one of the best and the brightest on the House side, and they put him, they paired him up with ISIS because they wanted to block ISIS. Well, what is Cummings saying at all of these hearings? I, and I, that is going to be very interesting to see. Well, well Congressman Al, I mean, you you know you know uh, Ranking Member Cummings. Uh, you you worked with him previously. He, he seems to be in almost. Uh, in somewhat agreement with what ICE is doing. At least that's been the case in the past uh, couple of weeks in some of these hearings, particularly with the issue regarding the IRS. I, th I think that Cummings is, uh, is sly like a fox, uh, and I think he's waiting for, uh, for ICE to step in. Uh, and then, so we know what it is, he'll pull the noose tight and pull the legs out from under ICE, or at least make that effort. Bob, you're nodding your head. You agree. Yeah, I think that I think it it would be wrong for uh, Mr. Cummings right from the get-go to start saying we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that. I think what is going on. I mean, obviously there is there are problems both with the IRS and with Justice Department with the subpoenas on the new media, and I think it's important that that he hold his fire until he until he sees the whites of their eyes, so to speak. And I think that's exactly what he's doing. I think it's a wise move. Everybody says he's a very smart man, and he is. Well, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago at our last live broadcast, and we, we there was a, a particular uh, notice of the White House not being able to get in front of this. Bob, you and I talked about this offline about a week ago, that it, it's striking, and Alan Moore, I'm going to pose this to you. One would learn in Crisis Communications in Politics 101 <laughs> that you try and get in front of the issue, you try and get ahead of it, try and block it. This administration seems to be tripping over itself. It can't get in front of anything that comes in front of it. Well, it's awfully hard to prepare to 
try to get in front of three or four things at the same time, they don't do a very good job of getting out in front of one thing, unless it's in the context of an election at, at which they were enormously successful, uh, trained, talented, and, and responsive. Um, but when it comes to the to the business of governing the uh, uh, and maintaining a single message, getting the right spokesperson, I mean Benghazi was a was a particular problem because they stepped all over themselves on the message. They gave Susan poor Susan Rice uh, completely inadequate and misleading talking points, and it's interesting to figure out how that came to pass, but the fact of the matter was she got some, some really bad information and she went out on five network shows and talked about it. And by then they were in, in deep. Uh, they hoped it would go away. And then over the course of a, of a, of a week, they, they're looking again more closely at Benghazi. How did it happen and who said what to whom and when and how, who did these talking points and was there a political motive for it? And then we have IRS. And then we have the AP, and that's in a matter of four days. And and uh, and they the, the president's created some of these problems himself. His response to the IRS was and AP, hey, I'm just hearing about this stuff for the first time, just like the rest of you. Oh my God, talk about a message you do not want to send if you are the commander in chief. It showed lack of training, lack of preparation, and and lack of discipline on his part. Um, and and the people around him made some questionable judgments because they were aware, for example, of the IRS uh, a, a couple of weeks out decided not to tell the president. Bob Hines. To follow up on what Alan was saying, um, what this the White House situation really indicates is that they that they have the wrong kind of people in the White House serving the president, and that's really his responsibility. Are you talking about the lack of Washington insiders? I am. I mean, I can, you cannot imagine uh, somebody like a Jim Baker or a Howard uh, Baker, to name just two Republicans, and there have been Democratic top-drawer staffers, too, who know how to get ahead of them, who know how to marshal the inf information, knock the heads together they need to find out, and get a good you know, story out that helps understand what the crisis is and what they're doing about it. And it seems to me that the worst thing you can do is seem to be dithering there and not doing anything. And the president seems to have got himself in a situation where he, he and his staff are just, at least his staff, is just not where they ought to be, getting ahead of the issue, finding out what's going on, making sure the president knows what's going on, and sounding like they're on top of it. And that, everything in that area, they're lost. Congressman Al. <clears throat> Shock. I agree with the last two statements. Uh, that there is something about this White House that seems to make it capable of winning elections brilliantly and then not knowing the politics of running the government. And I think that's terribly unfortunate. Normally, this is uh, something that appears in the first term and is dealt with in the first term, and by the time they get to the second term, you could go back to Richard Nixon made a lot of mistakes in his first term. He made, he made a whopper in the second <laughs> term, too. But, but in the first term, he, he was not looking terribly competent, and Evans and Novak wrote a book about how incompetent he was. Uh, and then he went to China. And things changed, and then Watergate and things changed. Denise? I'm going to follow that up. I, I agree. Normally, you don't see this in the second term. 
And I would strongly encourage my own party to be bringing people in who are Washington insiders and folks from industry, and God forbid, I hate to say this, maybe even a couple of lobbyists into the administration to provide them with advice. I think one of the, the strongest mistakes this administration has made, and I say this about my own party, is that they put the ban on lobbyists. You've got to get people in who know this you have to get people in who know how things work. Well, joining us late is our good friend. He is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Carl, I want to go to you on this. You were nodding your head yes as, as Denise was giving her explanation. It, it, it just seems odd that it's gotten to this point for somebody in the administration to say, you know what, maybe we do need a couple of Washington insiders to help us navigate the strange canals of Washington. No, they, they occasionally they do that. Uh, the vice president put a lobbyist in to uh, help him politically. Um, but, you know, by and large, the administration has shut the door to lobbyists. Um, <clears throat> one point I want to make is, is that, you know, I don't, I'm going to go out on the limb. I don't think there's going to be anything to the IRS scandal. I don't think they're going to put it on the president. Um, uh, Benghazi is is flopped, and I think that also is going to pass. The only thing they might have is is the AP situation, and the AP situation uh, hopefully is going to be uh, handled in Congress. Schumer has already introduced a, a bill <coughs> as to how to how the Brazil law right how to go forward. And another thing is, you know, the economy is getting better, and the Republicans cannot come out and say, oh, it's the economy, and the economy is awful, and it's this president and this administration. And I think that's part of the reason for all these all these investigations coming forward. Carl, i, I got to ask you, you, you say that there's nothing to this IRS scandal. I mean, you're talking about in the middle of a, a heated election – the IRS targeting, for lack of a better term, individual so-called nonprofits that they viewed as possibly lobbying. The timing on it may have been horrible, but you don't think that there was any political motivation or that the White House could have gotten in front of it when they were first advised of this back in 2012? We will find out through their, their interviewing lower-level uh, people at the IRS in Cincinnati at this point to try to find out what happened and, and, and who knew who and who knew what. Um, I think I think that uh, <clears throat> you know, some information came out over the weekend that uh, some of the cases that they looked at were faulty and, 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 and they were doing too much of this or too much of that and not doing what they were supposed to be doing. Denise Kraft. As a former political appointee, I can't tell you how many times people said to me, did you know? And my response was, no. I, I mean, you would be surprised at how many GS-12s, GS-13s, and even GS-14s make some pretty incredible decisions, like the one that happened in Cleveland, and the person in charge of the agency doesn't know about it and won't know about it until somebody says, did you know? Yeah, but these, we're, we're talking about a situation where the president and the Office of White House Counsel were advised Back in 2012, pre-election, that seems to me that that would have at least set up a red flag to the White House saying, wait a minute, you know, this does not pass the Washington Post front page smell test. 
we probably need to get in front of it if by not if for no other reason saying back in 2012, hey, White House was advised of this. We've taken control. The people that were doing this have been summarily disciplined, if not let go. Why would they not do that instead of saying, oh, we didn't know. There's obviously a, a trail that says it does go to the White House. Right, but the question is going to be, as somebody's in charge of the agency, what did you know? When did you know it? How did you convey that information? And, oh, by the way, just because they made this decision, you can't suddenly fire them. You actually have to develop, you have to go through and you have to investigate this because if you do fire them, then they're going to come back and they're going to appeal it. And then it goes to the MSPB. And then after the MSPB, then you get appealed. I mean, you need to follow, sometimes you have to follow procedure because following procedure ensures that it's a shorter route rather than a longer one to make mistakes. Bob Hines, you agree? Well, yeah, I, it, it is hard to fire people. I agree with that. Right. But the, the truth of the matter is, the fact that the staff in the White House knew some time ago and didn't bring it to the president's attention, I find just impossible. I cannot imagine uh, the chief of staff, I cannot imagine Howard Baker, as a matter of fact, not saying to the president, this is what's going on. We've just discovered this. You need to know about it. I cannot imagine not letting the, the boss know what's going on on his watch. Whether you like it or not, the president is the boss. I think I think it's it's going to end up being a little bit more, uh, comp, you know, um, difficult for the president than just you know saying I, I didn't know anything about it. Congressman Al. Well, I've said it before. Taylor's first law applies. Uh, you know, do not uh, do not uh, ascribe to conspiracy that for which stupidity will suffice for an answer. And I think you've had some profoundly stupid judgments made by White House staff and agency staff. Let's go down to the IRS and Cleveland. Stupid. And I will, I'd be willing to bet that it was decisions made by GS whatever in Cleveland that did it. And why do I think they were stupid? Because a smart crook wouldn't have done it that way. My God. A person who was... In, insisted on being partisan and what have you and trying to make trouble for these right-wingers would have found a better way to do it than this, which was bound to backfire. So I think they should all be fired on the basis of incompetence, uh, not uh, for being bad. Alan Moore. The political problem for the president here is is multi there are multiple problems. One, it appears that He's got people who don't tell him important things when it's happening. So he ends up having to say, then it, it, talk about looking at, like he's out of out of the loop. Gee, I'm just hearing about this stuff too that my administration is doing. There's a whole other problem though, and it feeds a growing narrative of the president being a little bit disengaged, a little bit aloof, overconfident, and uh, and people are reaching out and doing things in his name that he perhaps doesn't know about, but that it's consistent with criticisms he was leveling consistently about what Republicans were doing. Um, and so you kind of follow a string, and I agree with Al that it's much more likely to be stupidity than some big conspiracy, but the stupidity that has at its roots um, uh, this, this nonstop political campaign from the president uh, dumping on, attacking the, the Republicans, uh, how they're managing their campaigns, and you got some people out, and, and a bunch of Democrats saying, 
take a look at these new groups, look hard at them, and then trying to figure out a quick way to look at at at, at the numbers now, at, at the numbers of new right right uh, leaning groups now. You've you've got this woman Lana Lerner who who is not exactly helping the situation. She well, was, I was going to get to that. She's yeah. In, she's in charge of the group. She comes forward to the Congress, takes a very unusual move, and first of all saying, "I didn't do anything wrong. I'm proud of the decisions I made," and then says, "But I'm going to invoke my uh, Fifth Amendment rights to uh, uh, against self-incrimination for no laws that I think I've broken." It was pretty bizarre, pretty embarrassing. People leaned on her to quit. She said, I'm not resigning. And you can understand why somebody doesn't want to just be thrown to the wolves, legally and otherwise. So now she's on administrative leave, getting paid to do nothing. Right. And it it is just, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm intrigued with Carl's dream world of, Oh, I think the IRS is nothing. <laughs> it's like Carl. You're, you're living in an alternate universe. Um, it, it may turn out that that it was mostly mid and upper level people, but but too many high level people knew things for too long for the White House to get get uh, totally off the hook here, no matter what. Well, happens. I want to go back to the Lana Lerner issue here real quick uh, before we go to break and, and talk about this. Denise, uh, you served as counsel on on a uh, House committee before. When Lana Lerner, in fact, gave her testimony in her opening remarks and then said, I, on the advice of counsel, am not going to answer any questions, several Republicans stood up and said, well, wait a minute. You gave opening remarks. You you can't invoke your Fifth Amendment right after the fact. That's just not the point. Did she, in fact, lose her right to invoke her Fifth Amendment rights? I think you could see it from both sides. I hate to be King Solomon on this, but you can, you can see it from both sides. Should she have given an open remark and then say the fifth? No. Should, did she give up her Fifth Amendment right at, at, at a certain point? No. It, but it's going to be, how are you going to argue this? And, and by the way, not only how are you going to argue, but let me go back to the analysis. Who put the pressure on her to the point where she felt she had to pull the Fifth Amendment? But I, 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 I want to go to Bob Hines on this. Bob, longtime uh, parliamentarian inside and uh, an attorney by trade. Uh, Bob, you were kind of looking... Did she in fact did she in fact lose her ability to invoke her Fifth Amendment rights in your opinion when she gave opening remarks? Should they have pressed her on it? What she basically said was general statement. She did not answer any of the questions that uh, were that are in the air that were going to be asked had she uh, been there. So my view is that she did not lose her right, even though that she put her Former testimony in the record. What testimony? She there was testimony from back in 2012 where this was discussed as an open forum in front of one of the committees in the House. I forget which one. And they asked her about this. They said, "Will you talk about your testimony given before another committee just on that paperwork?" They asked her, "Is this your testimony?" She acknowledged and said yes. And at that point, she said, well, I'm not going to answer any questions about that because I got points of the amendment rights, even though she put the testimony forward. I don't think, I don't think that is necessarily enough. enough to change her right to keep silence before this committee. It's fair enough. Carl, to the last word. Knowing that this... 
this conversation was going to uh, lead to this. I asked two constitutional lawyers about about her uh, her activities and, and her doing this, and both of them said to me, it's very complicated, it has to be researched, and, and we just cannot answer at this point. Uh, we're going to uh, take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to bring in our special guest, Dr. Alice Crowther, who is with Wikistrat. He is a longtime policy fellow. He is a uh, former executive aide to the Supreme Allied Commander, NATO Forces Europe, and he's going to give us a great uh, amount of expertise, because God knows we don't have it. We have a great amount of expertise here talking about uh, the president's speech on security last week. You mean we're going to start talking about something serious? Oh, good. Oh, good, yes. I can hardly wait. I, I know. Shocking, isn't it? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in part of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches, they've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
call once. And we're back here live from Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to change gears a little bit, bring in our uh, special guest. He is Dr. Alex Crowther. He's a former executive aide to Supreme Commander Allied Forces NATO. He is a uh, 30-year retired U.S. Army colonel, uh, very specialized in the policy and strategy arenas, and he's joining us today. Dr. Crowder, thank you for joining us. Justin, thank you for inviting me out. Oh, not a problem. Uh, as, as everybody will tell you, it's nice to have people who have, like, facts when we come on the show. So thanks for bringing facts. Hey, uh, we, we want to talk a little bit about um, the president's uh, big policy speech last week at the National Defense University, where he kind of outweighed his going forward proposal on how America handles the security question, when it comes to drones, when it comes to Guantanamo Bay, when it comes to the threat from Islamic extremists, internal threats, uh, basically outlined his going forward plan on security and how we protect our nation from those who want to do us harm. Uh, Alex, I want to start with you on this. What was, you talked about a lot of areas. Let's start on Gitmo, because Gitmo got a lot of attention because there was a protester uh, who was calling on the president to, in fact, shut down Gitmo. Uh, brought out the fact that there are uh, prisoners that are on a hunger strike. They are now well into their second month of hunger striking. Um, it is a, uh, an issue that President Obama stood very fast on. What, what came out of that that kind of struck your eye as being a big shift in policy change in the administration? Well, uh, President Obama said when he came in for his first administration that he wanted to close it, so I don't see a big change at all. Uh, he, uh, he would like to close it. It has cost us a lot of uh, moral credibility around the world when uh, a country that is based on the rule of law holds people indefinitely, um, so there's a lot of impetus to, uh, to finish it up. But, Alex, when we look at Gitmo, uh, you know, it's a, it almost has become not so much a homeland security issue, but now if you listen to what the president was saying and what the opponents of closing Gitmo are saying, it's almost a not-in-my-backyard situation. We don't want to bring them here to a supermax facility here in the United States. At the same time, we look and we say, you know what, we can't let these guys go back to Yemen. They may go in, back into, into circulation. How do we address that situation? Well, that's the situation that he uh, he inherited. At this point, there's he says there's 166 people at Guantanamo Bay. I hear that about 30 of them are just really bad people that we can't let loose anywhere. But the big problem is uh, we have a hard time trying them in the United States because uh, they were 
detained in the early days uh, after 9/11, before uh, before we were good at uh, at translating intelligence into evidence. So they were taken by intelligence, but we don't have the evidence to try them. When, but at, at the same time, when we when we look at the threat that is coming externally, for example, through Islamic extremism. We, we, have a, we have a huge situation where we look at the fact that we are still, although some claim that the president made these insinuations that we've, we've killed bin Laden, al-Qaeda is on the, is on the uh, retreat, we've done the job in Afghanistan, we've stabilized Iraq. Uh, at, at some point, where do we say, well, he's being naive about security? Is that, is, is that accurate or is that fair? Well, uh, it depends on your perspective. He says that the core of al-Qaeda is on the path to defeat. Um, of course, only time will tell. Uh, what every president doesn't want to do is declare victory uh, and then be proved wrong. So he wants to move very carefully on this one. On the other hand, he does want to wrap up the war on terror and try to get this all behind us. Are, but are we in, a st are we in as, as, as the president put it, uh, a continuous war against Islamic extremism. Uh, he's, he said uh, persistent operations, uh, a series of persistent targeted efforts is what we're doing. Uh, he said he's trying to close down the war, but uh, Justin, uh, as long as we're the richest country in the world, and as long as we have all of our freedoms, there are people out there that are going to hate us and are going to want to take this away from us, and they are going to attack us. Now, the president also called out when we talk about both, you know, the threats facing America. He brought out the uh, the attack of the Sikh temple in Wisconsin, outside of Milwaukee. Uh, he he brought in um, the Murrow Building bombing. Uh, he brought up the. Um, uh, he, he brought up the Boston Marathon, obviously, and also brought up the gentleman flying the plane into the IRS building in Texas. He says that, uh, according to him, that we face a real threat from radicalized individuals here in the U.S. Do, do we need to refocus a little bit into what we're dealing with internally as opposed to externally, where the focus has largely been for the past 10 years? Well, Justin, he defined the current threat as a lethal yet less capable al-Qaeda affiliates, threats to diplomatic facilities and businesses abroad, and homegrown extremists. So uh, one of the groups that we have to guard against is homegrown extremists. Of course, we've had those in the United States for our whole history. Do you believe that al-Qaeda is, in his words, uh, lethal yet less capable? Are they less capable? They are less capable than they once were, but there are many more actors out there than just al-Qaeda at this point. So... so not to put the onus back on the president. I mean, the, the president made some very bold statements in this in this speech, calling them uh, less capable. It's not the fact that they're less capable; they're just not as centrally organized. Is that accurate? Uh, no, they they were always decentralized. But what has happened is, uh, after a decade of targeted operations, uh, we've taken out the vast majority of the Al Qaeda leadership, so they are no longer as capable as they once were. At the same time, other organizations have sprung up, the Al-Qaeda affiliates and other organizations that are going to be targeting us. When, when, now, when, when the president talks about uh, that most terrorism 
is that we face is quote unquote fueled by a common ideology. How do you interpret that common ideology? I don't necessarily agree that all terror, the majority of terrorism is funded by, fueled by a common ideology. Uh, I believe in this case he's talking about radical Islam, but there are plenty of other terrorists out there, like McVeigh, who are motivated by other hatreds. But did, did, it, it almost seems like, at least the way that I saw this, and, and folks around the table jump in, it, it, the, the way I took it was he was almost saying that we're almost back to a pre-9-11 stage of, of addressing the threats that face America, that we no longer have the threat of the large-scale coordinated flying airplanes into the World Trade Centers. It's more individual, quick-shot-type terrorists like we saw in Boston, like we saw in uh, the disco in Berlin, like we saw in uh, the Beirut embassy issue. Is, is that accurate? Um, the reason that, uh, that the terrorists have had to dial back their types of attack and gone to uh, different, disparate, small attacks is because we're on top of them. Uh, if you uh, let up the pressure, then they're going to have the time and the space to organize bigger attacks like they did in the 1990s. In the 1990s, you saw an escalation that uh, started out uh, with the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, and then you had the, uh, the Africa embassy bombings, the coal culminating in 9-11. You don't want to give them enough time and space to reorganize. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot of people who would really like to put terrorism back in law enforcement channels. One of, the, one of the strange things that I heard out of the president at the, at the NDU speech was the fact that he, he almost seemed apologetic for going after bin Laden in Pakistan. Uh, his comment was that uh, we, we, we cannot make that the norm. Uh, in, in fact, his, uh, his quote is that the Pakistan, and I quote, our operation in Pakistan against Osama bin Laden cannot be the norm. The risks in this case were immense. It's almost like he's almost second-guessing his own decision. Where, where, where do we draw the line of getting those people but having a government that we can trust maybe uh, a handful of times in our dealings with them? Well, um, in this particular case, when he talks about this uh, being a risky operation, the risks in the case were immense, he's talking about uh, deploying soldiers on the ground. Uh, and when you're in helicopters and you're in somebody else's territory, uh, as we saw with Desert One uh, or the Sun Tai Raid in uh, Vietnam, things can go bad and then Americans start getting killed. So he doesn't, he prefers not to do that type of operation where we actually send people in on the ground. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that, and I think that my, my reading on that was uh, that, yeah, we, we, we went in after bin Laden. We were pretty sure it was him. We got him. We feel terrific about that. We're not going to do a lot of that. But that in a way, that was also a way to support his drone policy because the way I read that is in the future we'll ignore him. No, in the future we will send a drone over there and blow it up, even if we're not 100% sure who it is, but we're 
quite sure. The, the, the whole drone policy uh, uh, evolution is fascinating because, uh, as we've said around this table before, um, they, they love to thump their chest over the fact that they're not submitting uh, prisoners to waterboarding, and Bush submitted three people to waterboarding. Um, and there will be an argument for all of our lifetimes, I suppose, on whether we got good information from that. Um, but but uh, we don't waterboard anymore. No, we just kill them. We don't, we don't catch them and maybe get information from them, whether it's by being nice to them or being harsh with them. We just kill them and anybody else uh, who's nearby. Um, but that creates problems. Oh, not least of all is it becomes the greatest force for recruiting new terrorists. Maybe not as well organized as the old Al-Qaeda that we've broken up, but all these satellites, they have the greatest recruiting mechanism they could ever hope for, which is the damage the thousands of people that drones have killed, uh, including a lot of people by collateral damage. I'm very sympathetic to, what the, to the challenges here and what the president's trying to do, but there is no free lunch. And he's He's now saying, well, here's what we were doing. We've got some new transparency on drones, but we're going to modify that further and be absolutely certain who we've got and, and be really highly confident that we're not going to have collateral damage. Oh, and while we're doing that, we're going to give primary drone responsibility back to DOD from whom we took it to give it to CIA where it started Back to DOD is the primary actor because there's greater transparency, although they've proved they're not as good at it. This is just a challenge and, and a mess, but the notion, I, I think part of the problem, this is a very academic speech that he gave, and this notion of, gee, is the war on terror over? No, but he's trying to say it's moved to a new place and it's more confined. I, we think our risks are more likely they were pre-9-11 but it's still going on, and everybody's still trying to parse it. Denise Crack. I'm going to piggyback a little bit of what Alan just said, and, and I'm going to use my legal hat at this point. And for me, as not only a lawyer but as a vet, it's the question of what are the laws of war? I mean, traditionally the laws of war were based on the fact that you could see somebody. You, you had a gun, you had a sword, you had a tank, you had a horse, you had whatever you, you had. You had a uniform. You had a uniform, and you could see them, and you were going to kill them and you were going to kill them because they were right next to you. If you were flying a drone that's 3,000, 6,000 miles away, how does that implicate, you know, how does that, how does that resonate within the traditional laws of war? I mean, traditional laws of war have been codified. They've been put into conventions. They've been put into domestic law. We are messing around with something that's been in existence now for hundreds of years. And are we ready to recognize the implications. But, but theore theoretically, I mean, I, I, was, talking, I was talking to a, 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 an old World War II vet not long ago. We were talking about drone strikes, and he, he made a, a, a very a, a very interesting point, saying, "Look, we've been doing quote unquote drone strikes forever in 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 the in the world of aviation warfare. Theoretically, the the bomb drops on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were just." Man aircraft, but they were drone strikes. Okay, but it, the carpet bombing of Vietnam was, in fact, a just large-scale bombing. But they were, if you look at what we do with drone strikes today, drone strikes. Why? Why does that change the ability for us not to comply with the rules of war? 
Well, the difference is, for instance, uh, when you're talking about bombing, uh, firebombing Tokyo or Dresden, uh, that's part of a declared war where Congress is in on the action and there is a circumscribed theater of war. You draw a box on a map and say anything within that map is free game. But theoretically, aren't we, do, aren't we doing that in Afghanistan? We have not declared war. But, but additionally, I have less problems with drone strikes in Afghanistan than I have with, say, drone strikes in Yemen, which is outside of every recognized theater of war, where the Congress passes uh, uh, legislation that defines where combat is occurring. Uh, it was in Iraq, it is in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but I haven't seen anybody say that we're doing combat operations in Yemen, but when you launch a drone, Right in Yemen, that's a combat operation. But, but, but let me ask this question though, and, and when we look at the changing of the rules, it almost seems, and, and some have said this early on, that Al Qaeda changed the rules. They became non-uniform combatants. That is, they brought and expanded the the, the arena of war by them dispersing and centralizing their operations in places like Yemen, in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan. Uh, Where's the separation? No, because, uh, for instance, if you read Max Boot's uh, latest uh, book about irregular warfare, uh, the weak have always hidden in uh, the desert, in the mountain, in the jungle. What's different now is our ability to track them down in those areas. So bombing North Vietnamese soldiers in Laos uh, is one thing, but doing drone strikes in Somalia, Sudan, Yemen is something else, because it's not even in the same theater that you're doing combat operations. Bob Hines. You know, this conversation really gets to the heart of how do you solve a problem that's extremely difficult. We're talking about Yemen here a few minutes ago. Yet, the fact of the matter is, there was a leading, that, you know, they have a, a, a separate Al-Qaeda organization in there, and that, that, that American citizen, Mullah, who was over there, was, you know, just, uh, you know, trying to do everything he could to damage the American and kill people. We killed him. Now, I mean, you know, but, you know things are, the way, the way, I don't know that we're ever, the, the human race is ever going to have anything like World War II again. just doesn't seem likely. Uh, I think, the, well, the rules, I think, have to change, and I don't know how to change them. But it's very clear to me that if you've got somebody in Yemen who is plotting against you and trying to kill Americans, whether they're on the battlefield, whatever that means, or whether they're in their cities, whatever that means, I hope, and if you can do it, you should do it. Because that stops him from doing something that he that we don't want him to do. We just kill Americans. But how do you solve this problem? I don't know. Alex, how do you respond to that? I mean, Bob brings up a, a very valid point. No. Well, under international law, uh, any country has the responsibility to prevent their territory from being used as a springboard against uh, operations against another country. So. Uh, but when if, they don't. If, if they don't, then that frees the target country to come in and, and do operations. So uh, legally, uh, from an international law perspective, we have the right to attack people in Yemen who are plotting against the United States if the Yemenis aren't going to get it under control. That's, I, I don't know anybody that is uh, complaining about that. 
what they're complaining about is the globalization of drone strikes 24-7 with no legal structure to control that. To figure it out. And, and that's what I think. If you're going to take the military action, you've got to match it with the legal uh, structure at the same time. You cannot move them separately. If you move them separately, you end up with Guantanamo Bay. Yes. Quite frankly, that's what happens. You've got to fix that problem and move together. But, Congressman, I'll go ahead. But the thing that I think, the thing that, that, that we overlooked is how you started this out. The president basically said, this is no longer going to be standard operating procedure. Now, he didn't say exactly when it might be used, and his actions, his subsequent actions will indicate what he meant or whether he meant it at all. You know, we don't know. But at least he has said for the time being, our policy is that we're just not going to automatically use drones the way we have been using them uh, as a standard operating procedure. Uh, you, you can argue whether that's a good policy or not, but at least he's indicating that we are changing how we are handling drones. This is, in, in many ways, an aspirational speech yes. when you talk about that. He would yes. like the authorization for military force to be changed yes. uh, and eventually repealed. He would like to have a more transparent uh, system in uh, targeting people, but I don't really see how he's going to do that. Carl Tubin. What, mean, what impact is, is the fact that some of the people who manufactured drones are, are now talking about uh, selling them to foreign countries? Uh, foreign countries are making their own drones, so uh, that's, that's not really an issue. A drone proliferation is going to be, as soon as an American gets killed in a drone strike, it, the proliferation of drones is going to be an issue. It's going to be a hot topic immediately. But we, when, we, when we look, going back to Gitmo, the, the, the question of detaining them for military tribunals or military courts or putting them into the civilian sector, uh, traditionally, I mean, President Bush created Gitmo, created a structure that would present a a uh, a, a try a, uh, a, a a almost jurisprudence in that arena, specifically designed for those that we've captured that wish to do harm against the United States, versus putting them automatically in the civilian court. It, it is is putting them into the civilian system the right way to go, Alex? Um, originally. We went to Gitmo because we were looking for a place where the American jurisprudence system did not rule. They looked at the Marianas, they looked at Guam, they looked at a bunch of different places, uh, and Guantanamo Bay, because it was on someone else's sovereign territory, i.e. the Cubans, uh, the writ of the American court didn't go there in 2001. It goes there now. Uh, I personally thought at the time that we should have just sent everybody to Kansas and given them a lawyer right away because that's what's going to end up happening. Uh, they're going to end up in the American jurisprudence system, and because of the way it was handled, it's going to be very messy, and it's going to take years, if not decades, to run this through the system. Denise, you, 
shake my head in agreement. I, I mean, it, and this is because of the fact that the military didn't move at the same time as the legal system. And by the way, this isn't the first time we've tried to go around the military system and around the civilian system. I mean, we had the cases after the Civil War. We had the cases in World War II. And in each of those cases, we ended up with problems. But here's a little factoid. You know Dr. Mudd? You know, your name is Mudd? That was right. after Dr. Mudd. Well, his family is now appealing it and, and, and going before the administration and saying he shouldn't have been tried in the military system. I mean, it's been 150 years. And we're still talking about that case. I don't think we want to be talking about these cases in 150 years. Well, that brings up a good point. I mean, but we're also talking about a different set of facts. I, I agree with what you're saying. But bottom line, Alex, when we when we look at the overall speech, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the drone section. We're going to do that after the break. But overall, you don't think this is a big shift in policy. This is more of an aspirational forward-looking speech of where we should be on a national security level. Is that accurate? It depends on uh, where you stand, depends on where you sit in this case. If you uh, love President Obama, he's trying to get ahead of his opponents on Capitol Hill. If you hate President Obama, he's changing the subject in the middle of multiple investigations. And if you're in the middle, you hope he's trying to get the war on terror under control. Are, are we back to a, a pre-9-11 stage in the war on terror? No. Uh, many people would like us to go back to pre-9-11, uh, but that's not going to happen. Will we ever see that again? We could, but I doubt it. Very good. Somebody's got to find a magic wand before we get there. It, it, well, it brings up another case. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about a little bit further about the drone situation, uh, Dr. Crowd with you, and also talk a little bit about Benghazi when we come back. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town
express, uh, but it doesn't take to get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call, he's coming home until the fall, and then again I might not get home at all, soon as back in town, oh, that woman's back in town, oh my, 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 my. And we're back here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Back Room Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, you know, so many things to talk about. You know, we, we've talked about, uh, you know, the situation, the scandals with the IRS and the AP. We've talked about uh, the president's security speech at the National Defense University last week. Uh, oh, and by the way, it's happy hour here at Shelley's. We're going to order our drinks, cut open our cigars, and and take it in for the second hour. Uh, joining us again is uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Alice Crowther, a retired colonel, U.S. Army, uh, great strategist in the way of defense and national security policy. He's joining us offering his his ideas, his, his views, and, and giving us facts, which, as everybody who listens to the show, we usually don't work with. So this is new ground <laughs> for us. Um, uh, we, that's right. Let me go back to the drone question here real quick before we go on. Uh, when we talk about drones, we hear a lot uh, as far as the future of American warfare being remote, taking the boots off the ground and being more intelligence-based, more drone-based, more targeted, strategic, surgical, as opposed to wave forces of boots on the ground. Is that a reality, or are we living in a dream world? Um, this uh, this really is a reflection of American culture. We are technocratic problem solvers as a nation, and so we want a technocratic solution, preferably uh, with none of our people getting hurt. That's the way we've always been. It's the way we always will be, and so this is the latest wave of we really don't need soldiers on the ground because we've got technology. But there are always going to be situations where you've got to put somebody on the ground to control the situation. But, but when, we, when we look at the new reliance almost on special operations, uh, there's been a new focus. We saw it with SEAL Team 6 in the, in the uh, apprehension or killing of, of bin Laden. Uh, we've seen more of a focus on special operations and a lot of military operations we've seen since 9-11. Is that, is that the future, more specialized uh, soldier base, sailor base, than we saw back in, let's say, Desert Storm 1? Well, um, we've discovered, and we're in the middle of discovering yet again, that when you kill a lot of people, everybody gets irritated. So we really want to kill fewer people, but the right people. If, you know, the, the best uh, case scenario for the president is someone says, Ahmed is a bad guy, the president pushes a button, Ahmed falls over, and no one else get hurt. That's the perfect situation. They, they would love to move as close to that as possible, but that ain't happening anytime soon. Well, let, 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 well oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Just, yeah. Can I augment his perfect scenario? A absolutely. Perfect Alan scenario Moore. is that Ahmed would fall over dead without being blown up by what was an obvious drone strike by America, but that he had a heart attack. Because even if we only take out the single solitary person that we want, which is... Virtu which virtually never happens, 
because um, they're always surrounded by people and traveling with other people, um, uh, it still fuels this anger towards America, this deep-seated resentment that we we win the we win the battle, if you will, uh, against that particular person, but we we further lose something in the larger war in that we've given still another uh, uh, recruiting speech for for our for does, does America's new drone policy, as the president would like to see, help us diplomatically, Alex? Well, Ahmed's family really doesn't care what our drone policy is. Okay, when Ahmed dies, they're going over to the dark side. They hate the United States. So it really doesn't matter uh, what the policies are. Bob Hines. Does it make any difference to Ahmed's family if we send 20 Marines in to kill him or send a drone? Uh, well, I'm trying to no, this out. no, not really. Um, if uh, <laughs> if you move 20 Marines in and they stay there for 20 years, no. it'll make a difference. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have the capacity to do that anymore. We used to do that, no. uh, but we have stopped doing that. You'll notice that there are still American troops on the ground in Korea, in Japan, in Germany, so when we go in and consolidate after we're done and make sure that the pressures are squeezed out of the system, which takes decades, uh, we can do that. But just going in and tearing stuff up, uh, even if it's uh, a matter of a couple of years and then leaving, uh, all you do is just irritate everybody. Well, it just seems to me we're damned if we do, if we or damned if we don't. If, we, if we're going to uh, fight these groups, of, of people who want to who want to get at us, you know, with, uh, like Al Qaeda or some of these other organizations. Uh, and if we if we send people on the ground, we we're going to get our own men killed. If we do drones, we're going to have less of our men killed. We may be doing something that seems to be surgically striking, and people don't like that. I I don't know. We don't know that there's an answer to this except. We, we, nobody, these, there are a lot of people don't like us, and they're okay. going to keep trying but, to get at us. But this is a political problem. It's not yeah. a military problem. No. So it's there's a, no military solution right. to the problem. That's exactly right. Okay, so what's, what's happening is there's a socio-political problem going on where other people hate the United States, and we're trying to use, we're trying to force them to like us, uh, and it doesn't work. So we have to use other, uh, politically oriented, like information operations, and convince all those people uh, to at least leave us alone. Well, what are the chances of that? <laughs> well, no, uh, this, this, is, this is how we won the Cold War. Okay, we didn't win the Cold War militarily. Uh, we, but everybody in Eastern Europe wanted to be Western Europe because we won the war of ideas. And but we're not trying to do that now. Well, let's move on to another front in, in, in the diplomatic, industrial, military complex discussion. Uh, it was announced earlier today that Senator John McCain spent about an hour inside Libya uh, over the past, Syria. Uh, or yeah. Syria rather, yeah. Syria. He spent uh, about an hour in Syria. He was snuck in in a very elaborate operation, spent about an hour with, uh, with the Syrian rebel leadership, including the commanding general of the uh, Free Syrian Army. Uh, the Syrian question now gets into a, que a question of how do we support the Syrian rebels. Uh, yesterday, 
the EU uh, basically withdrew an arms ban uh, allowing uh, the EU community to supply arms and support to the Syrian rebels. Uh, it looks like that the Americans may follow suit if uh, Senator McCain's visit is any indication. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. What sign does that send that Senator John McCain met with Syrian rebel leadership, and what does that send globally? Um, McCain has been uh, out front advocating uh, a more robust uh, level of military support for the rebels, uh, possibly uh, creating a no-fly zone. Um, he is in a minority, in uh, not just a <laughs> Republican in the Senate, but he's in a minority in, in supporting that. Uh, it's not a lack of will on the part of uh, others, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, including the President, I think, in this case, but the President just can't figure out how to do it. Who are the allies? Um, how much could we trust them? And what exactly would we be prepared to do beyond the uh, uh, the technical assistance and the, the, the food assistance that we're now providing? Um, no one in, in America uh, wants to be associated with the death of 80,000 or more people and the displacement of several million. Um, having said that, it's barring sending in troops, which no one is supporting uh, in, 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 in any significant, no one who matters is supporting, um, our, our hands are tied, and we're still wrestling with what to do. The fact that John McCain went in to, to meet some of them, um, that, uh, that's interesting. It, it gets news for a day or so. He'll come back and talk about who he saw and probably use that to beef up his arguments of, of being more assertive on the part of the U.S. I don't see it changing uh, the, the the president's mind or many of his colleagues. Denise, real quickly, one of the questions coming up was, did he clear this with the White House or did he come off the reservation on this? Uh, you would have to believe that somebody as high visibility as Senator John McCain going into meeting with the leadership of the uh, Syrian rebels would probably be blessed by the White House, or is that idealistic? No, it would be blessed. I mean, for him to go over, he's representing the United States, and he's sending a signal. So that's blessed. And not only is it blessed, but he comes from a very strong military family, and the Syrians are going to know this, and they're going to want to parlay that into their own politics. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Bob Hines. I have another question for, for uh, Dr. Carruthers. Yeah, well, get, hold on. Alan, why don't you respond to yeah, what yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not so certain that the White House would have blessed this. Um, McCain can go. He, he came over from Turkey. So you go to Turkey and you go to refugee camps, of which there are a number, and there are hundreds of thousands of displaced Syrians, and you can go over there and converse. Um, he, at some point, has got to tell the folks, I want to go across, and he would have to tell the folks, presumably in the Turkish embassy, who would, if if they weren't forewarned, and they may not have been, would be scrambling uh, mightily I, to to figure out what to do. But I don't know if, that one can say that it was blessed. Um, it, it, it 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 there are any number of cases, and we can go back to Charlie to uh, Charlie Wilson and others who, who who could go off the reservation, 
and 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 not necessarily get the the full blessing. And as we know, this administration <laughs> increasingly has had a habit of saying. Gee, we don't know anything about it other than what we're hearing in the newspaper. And, and in terms of the danger involved, we didn't hear about it until after he'd gone in and come out. Bob, or Bob Lines, are you wondering? Right, but it's, it's purely the logistics behind this, because if he's going into Turkey and he's going into Syria, he's going in on a military plane, which means he's going in with military aides. Those military aides have to file flight plans, and they also have to make sure that they know what the itinerary is. Those types of itineraries get vetted by the White House. So if he's doing any of this, and he, the minute he deviates from this, you know, the White House is A, going to know, but they, then, but they probably knew about it beforehand because of the strict schedule in which those military folks plan these operations. I mean, I've been on a number of these, and they are down to the second, making sure that you are meeting and where you need to go. Yeah, but he, 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 he would have flown into Turkey and probably would have flown to the refugee camps. He, he went overland into northern Syria. Um, and uh, so, in terms of the, the flight plans, they wouldn't. They, they the the air force would not have been involved in the overland trip. The embassy and others, presumably, but but not guaranteed. Not guaranteed. It remains to be seen. Go ahead, Carl Pugin. Uh, two two things. First of all, TV uh, this morning suggested that he was he was snuck in to uh, Syria by the rebels. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was on from Israel uh, and said he had been in a few trips with Senator McCain and he's very good at digging out facts and figures and, and, and really bringing back good information. Also, the Senate passed a uh, either a resolution or a bill giving the president authority to... Uh, to arm the Syrian, arm the Syrian rebels, rebels, if he wants to. Well, I mean, this, this brings up a, a, a very interesting, interesting case. Is, you know, it, it's almost like now we, we, we've shown our cards, Congressman Al, uh, having a high-profile senator go and meet with the Syrian leadership, uh, leadership the rebel leadership, rather. Uh, we basically said, hey, we've got your back. Or is that reading too much into it? I'm not, I'm not sure about whether it's reading too much into it, but it does it, it, it pleases me to think that her uh, analysis is correct because it suggests to me that McCain has not gone fuzzy in the head and thought he won the presidential election two years ago. <laughs> I'm also reminded uh, in, in reading a, a, a biography of Teddy Kennedy that uh, he did a lot of trips to Russia. They're different than this, but he... Here's the great liberal. He would come back and totally debrief Ronald Reagan on on what he was doing. And if McCain and, and nobody's going to publicize this, nobody publicized the thing with Kennedy. But if he is now going to share some information with the uh, administration, this is all probably for the good. If in fact he is doing something other than that, it's a little worrisome to me. Well, it, it, it's, it's a strange, strange situation that we're dealing with. Bob Hines. Uh, uh, Alex, uh, I'd like to step back a little bit because my understanding of the, of the fighters, the rebels, all of them, there are a number of groups. Some of them are very much um, um, 
the locals, the people who were really the revolutionaries to begin with, and that's the general who I think that uh, the former general who McCain was meeting with, and that's the largest group, but it's not a great fighting group. The best fighters appear to be some um, groups from that are financed by uh, some of the Shiite governments and some of them uh, by, by the uh, Sunni governments who uh, of, the, of the countries around uh, Syria. And a lot of them are, are not of, have any interest at all in what we have an interest in. Now, my question is, I guess it's not a question, but my feeling is, how in the devil do we do anything over there that we can, what can we do to be helpful? I mean, I mean, obviously we're not going to put troops on there. Uh, and I don't know, how, how do you train people who are, you know, who, who, are, who are still trying to learn how to fight? I mean, it seems to me that we are, that we're, there's little we can do because early on, Early on, when there, when the rebels were 99% the local people who were upset, uh, have been bypassed by these more, uh, you know, ad hoc fighting groups that are mostly Islamic groups who don't care about uh, anything except fighting for it and, get, and getting and getting another another uh, country that's run by them. It seems to me that we we're not going to go in there militarily. I, I'm, I'm just kind of stunned to be in, in lost about what a good solution is, what we can hope for. So if, uh, I'm sorry I put you in the spot. Yeah, I, don't no think this, this, uh, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, the best case scenario would be if uh, Assad walked away. He said, I know that uh, there is no long-term solution with me being in charge, but my peeps have to be taken care of. He walks, and we come to a negotiated settlement would be the best case scenario. Um, there are, in any time you have opposition groups, there are disparate groups. Uh, in Nicaragua, there were three. The FMLN in El Salvador were once five. Uh, and then they were welded together by Fidel Castro, in this case. What were the Mujahideen uh, fighting against the Soviets were the same way. They were a bunch of different groups. So um, I believe that uh, the next best case scenario would be where uh, we could assist them, the opposition in all coming together and squeezing out the anti-American groups and then being victorious. Denise Kraft. And on the military side, why don't we be a little, you know, why don't we uh, remember our history? I mean, we didn't go into World War II directly after the invasion of Poland. We went in when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, but that doesn't mean that we weren't doing anything between 1939 and 1941. We did what was called the Lend-Lease Program with the British government. So if you're looking for some novel ideas on how do we support some military operations, look to the past and, and figure out how they were able to do some of these policies in a way that A, meets the existing law, B, meets our fiscal you know, necessity right now, and three, makes us friends on the international community. Well, that, that's a very valid point. Does a lend-lease situation like what we did with Britain in, in pre-World War II American involvement, does that lend itself credibility in today's situation, Alex? Well, remember the Lend-Lease Act is uh, where we actually gave them lethal aid 
uh, where we're at right now with the opposition in Syria is we're giving them non-lethal aid like we did with the Contras at the end of the Central American Civil Wars. Okay. okay. Congress shut down the lethal aid but authorized a continuation of non-lethal aid. Um, I am of the opinion that there are other people providing lethal aid right. and training to these groups, so we don't necessarily have to. Interesting, interesting point. But a lot of those groups have no interest in seeing us have any influence there at all. That's correct. Some, yeah. some of the opposition groups yeah. are anti-American, um, and nobody really wants to think about our revolution. Uh, did we want the French who were helping us to tell us what to do after the Revolutionary War? We disliked it so much that we, we started the quasi-war with them within a couple of years after our victory. So uh, this is a common, uh, common occurrence when re revolutionaries have outside help. What do you do with the outside help after you win? win? Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. It's obviously something that's not going away. We'll be talking about that uh, for weeks to come. Uh, but at this point, I want to thank Dr. Alex Crowther. Alex, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, my friend. Justin, thank you very much for inviting me out. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the, uh, the absolutely horrific tragedy uh, in Oklahoma and the politics that the Oklahoma delegation now finds itself involved in. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelley's Backroom for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurt cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelley's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelley's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Official sponsor of Backroom Politics. No one to talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, but I'm happy on the elevation, on the shelf. Hey, misbehaving, saving my love for you and you, especially you, yeah. I know for certain the one I love, I'm through with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of. Hey, misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like Jack Horner in a corner. Don't go nowhere, what do I care? Your kisses are worth waiting for Believe me I don't stay out late, no place to go I'm home about eight at my little radio Hey, misbehaving, saving my love for you For you, for you, yes, you All my love for you that's what I'm talking about.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to change uh, gears here for a second. Uh, for those of you guys, uh, we were we were uh, broadcasting a best of last Tuesday when an absolutely horrific uh, event occurred in Moore, Oklahoma, which is a uh, suburb of Oklahoma City in central Oklahoma. Uh, dozens killed, including uh, numerous children at uh, the Plaza Towers Elementary School. It was a horrific scene that they're still doing recovery operations on. However, uh, you know, and, and of course our, our thoughts and our prayers go out to the families of those who were injured and, and those who lost loved ones in that, in that terrible natural disaster. But it brings, up, it brings up the politics of disaster response and disaster aid. It, it has been brought to the attention of some on the Hill that there is some hypocrisy going on regarding who funds what and the relief efforts and the response efforts being provided by the federal government. Namely, it, this, uh, this tragedy in Oklahoma has brought to light the hypocrisy of several in the Oklahoma delegation uh, in, in Congress, both in the Senate and the House. Uh, these, are, these are members of Congress that largely voted against funding the Sandy relief bills, but now are welcoming and calling for uh, disaster aid and disaster relief in their own backyard in Oklahoma. Now, is the aid and relief needed? Absolutely. Is it the job of the federal government to provide that? Yes. Should it be funded fully? No question. But this does bring up several questions. There was a uh, there was an interesting uh, an interesting uh, uh, story published by uh, David Fahrenthold and Paul Kane in the Washington Post, basically saying that the Oklahoma delegation is facing a dilemma. Do they fund tornado relief? Uh, when we talk about disaster response, I want to start with you, Denise Krepp. Uh, as, as counsel on Homeland Security Committee, this was a question that was largely brought up, but the politics behind it had become so dynamic in the issues of sequestration, what do we fund, offset funding. Do you think that there's a hypocrisy being brought on by the folks in the Obama delegation, namely people like Tom Cole, uh, namely like Tom Coburn, namely uh, Jim Langford, uh, even the two freshmen, Brian Stein and Mullen, who openly were against funding for the Sandy, or basically against the Sandy Bill, but are now supporting funding into Oklahoma. Absolutely. They've got a bit of a problem. I mean, they came out against Sandy when, I mean, that state was devastated. I mean, absolutely devastated. And you're saying, no, we can't give you funding, but oops, now we need funding for, you know, a tornado. I, I think what it this shows is there is no planning for this type of, uh, these, and other things that, these types of events, because you're going to have hurricanes every year, you're going to have tornadoes every year, you're going to have natural disasters, and the question is going to be, why aren't we properly planning for it so that we don't end up where the Oklahoma delegation has a bunch of egg on its face going, shit, now what do we do? Well, now, let me just clarify one thing. Now, no, in, welcome in, to the club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you look at somebody like Tom Coburn. Now, now Tom Coburn, in defense of Senator Coburn, who, who I, am a, I am a fan of, uh, he has not changed his mind. He has said that if you're going to put federal funding, including in this recent Oklahoma disaster, 
there's got to be offset funding. You've got to take it out of federally funded programs and put that money. He is sticking to that demand. Uh, and that's a demand he's done since 1995, since the Murrow building. Uh, Alan Moore, you've got a thought on that. Well, <laughs> to call a Coburn a, a hypocrite is just flat wrong. He, he said with Sandy, we have to find other places in government to cut to make room for this uh, response, which is necessary and needed. Now, $60 billion was, was a huge stretch and, and ultimately not doable. He also said for the billion or so that we need for Oklahoma, we need to find an offset. He has been, as you say, 100% consistent. Cole was one of the handful who voted for Sandy the first time around because he said our turn will come, and he said our turn is here. Having said so, so I don't see all this hypocrisy on the one hand. On the other hand, I completely agree with Denise that the idea here is we're supposed to have federal disaster funds. It's supposed to be part of our government. We know that on average we're going to spend several billion dollars a year. Let's fund it up front. And then when we have an extraordinary need, like Sandy presented, then we will say, okay, folks, now what do we do? Now, can we offset some of it? Can we offset any of it? Or is it just more deficit spending? Now, I, I do want to clarify one thing. I, 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 I inadvertently lumped the entire Oklahoma delegation as voting against it. Uh, there were two of the six. Uh, Tom Cole... Uh, voted in favor of the uh, Sandy Relief Bill, as did, as did Frank Lucas. Uh, however, the other four did not. Uh, and this brings into question uh, the junior Senator uh, Inhofe uh, from Oklahoma. Uh, he said, and I quote, uh, the, the, well, let me paraphrase real quick in the interest of time, he voted against the Sandy Bill, but he says that and he, and he was quoted in MSNBC as saying that the difference between Oklahoma and Sandy are two totally different issues, which I, that's a quote from Senator Inhofe. Congressman now, that's got to make you shake your head. I mean, how do you justify that? What I think you've got here are members of Congress who are so fixed on their ideology that they are not thinking rationally about what can happen. Disaster can hit any congressional district in any state seriously, and you should realize that it's your job then, as a representative of that people, to do what you can to help your people. And you should vote in a way that permits you to vote to help your own people when, when that occurs. I have driven across the bridge that fell down on the Skagit River probably a thousand times. Uh, I had no idea it would fall down, but somebody's going to be looking for some federal money to rebuild that bridge, uh, and it's not anywhere near as horrific as Oklahoma, but it's a thing that that stops I-5 in Washington State completely. I mean, it's got economic and other consequences as well. So you need, you need to think ahead that, that, that it can, too, happen to you. This is like the young people who think that we can screw around and not get pregnant. I can drive a car drunk and not end up in the ditch. It isn't going to happen to me. That is adolescent thinking, and we need some more mature thinking in Congress on these kinds of issues. Alan Moore, 
this is a very slippery slope we're dealing with. When we talk about sequestration and emergency funding for natural disaster response and relief versus the off, finding the offset money in a time of austerity, where does the balance come from? Well, again, I think that we have enough of a history, even though we seem to, to, to have some idea of hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, um, bridge disasters, and so on, that that it, it behooves us. There's a responsibility in the legislature and the president to say, this is the amount of money that we want to put aside this year. It's part of our annual budget. And let's not lowball that number and then keep coming back with, oh, an emergency. Got to just ignore everything we've done so far and come up with some more money that we don't have. Um, it's, it's a matter of putting, making room in the first place. And then there, there should a tornado like the, the one that just hit Oklahoma is a biggie, but it's not so big that it shouldn't be part of what's in an annual estimate. Sandy's different. That was $60 billion plus or minus. The World Trade Center was unpredictable and, 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 ex, and, and truly extraordinary. And there have been a couple of hurricanes that have been up in that range where it was just like, oh, my God, this is a 100-year kind of thing, or a 100-year flood for that matter. We can't leave the floods out, uh, or drought for that matter. There's a, all kinds of stuff year after year after year, and if it costs $10 billion a year, then let's put $10 billion aside and then deal with it when that's not enough. And if, it only, if we had a good year and we only spent five, let's leave the five there and, and add it for the next here, year here, because here, we here, know here. this but, is going to happen. You know, I, I want to bring, bring up a situation that happened uh, just last week when, when you're talking about um, the uh, Governor Mary Fallon, uh, the Republican <laughs> governor of Oklahoma, uh, turned down a plan to distribute debit cards with $1,200 each, uh, funded with federal money, fed, funded with federal money, uh, to tornado-stricken families uh, earlier in the week at, or the week following the, the tornado tragedy. The, according to a story out of the Tulsa World, the federal government had almost $10 billion of unspent money that they could have used to fund these cards. Uh, the Director of Emergency Services, uh, uh, Secretary Lake, went to the CFO of Oklahoma, uh, the uh, Secretary of Finance, uh, Preston Dorflinger. Preston Dorflinger went and said, you know what, put the plan together. When it went up to the governor's office, she shut it down. Does, does that surprise you, Bob? Yeah. Why? Because she's the governor, and if she's saying, we don't want the money... Uh, you know, I don't know. I suppose she's going to go out there and start cleaning up the mess. But it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I think exactly what we're talking about here, like Alan said, there ought to be, we ought to make sure that every year we have a fund that is, is just set aside. If it's, if it's not used, all of that, it stays in the pot and we keep, we keep refreshing it so that we don't have this kind of a problem of saying, how are we going to get the money to the people right now on the ground who need it? And it's the only way to do it. I think we have to do that. And I don't know why uh, the governor of, of, of Oklahoma would have turned down federal money when it's obvious that it is needed there. 
Well, according to according to uh, the uh, spokesperson for Governor Fallon's office, uh, the governor Governor Fallon decided not to pursue the idea because of because according to the governor's office, quote, traditional means of relief such as the American Red Cross were doing a good job of meeting the immediate needs of tornado victims, and the state needed to concentrate on more pressing issues such as searching for trapped survivors. Continuing, the Red Cross is there, United Way is there, the Salvation Army is there. Every resource that we have, state and local, have been mobilized to address this. All the resources, shelter, medical care, mental health, water, food, clothing, those are there and available in more right now. Right, but Denise Kraft. But that is short-term relief. I mean, that, that is purely short-term relief. They're not going to be able to be there for the next three to four months. You need federal assistance. I mean, the federal, you cannot depend on the federal, or the Red Cross because they're going to tap out. You've got others that are going to tap out because there's going to be a hurricane. There's going to be a flood. They're going to have to go somewhere else. So for the governor to say everybody's doing okay because of what we have, that's crazy. That's not long-term thinking. Alan Moore. I, I'm amused at how we're so ready to trash the governor who is in the spotlight on the basis of, pardon the expression, the thin reed of information that we have here around the table. I would like to know a little bit more. Governors have have, have very very powerful feelings of, of self-preservation. So call me a skeptic about the storyline so far. Well, I mean, the story, the story that we're getting this out of is straight out of the, uh, the Tulsa world, uh, straight out of several news sources, and the stories remain the same, that, that, that there were folks inside the administration that wished to say, look, this is post, you know, post-traumatic stage relief efforts. There, there are people in more Oklahoma that could use that debit card to supply food that they can't get from the American Red Cross. American Red Cross is eventually going to pull out, as will Salvation Army, as will uh, United Way and, and the Southern Baptist Convention. My hunch is there's more here than, me, than, than meets the eye. That's all. Yeah, don't argue with the skeptic. It, it, it doesn't work. What Alan was saying before, I absolutely agree with. We need to understand some of these things will happen, and we need to prepare for them. Now, there's a major one going on right now, and we've known about it for years, and we're doing nothing about it. And when I mentioned my bridge that fell down in, on the, over the Skagit River, that's an example. We've got bridges all over this country that are eventually going to fall down. And what are we doing about preparing how we are going to pay for the repairs to our interstate system? Uh, and the answer is, according to action so far, we're going to do nothing. And do you think we're not going to let, we're not going to rebuild the bridge and what have you? Yes, we will. And if we haven't got funds set aside and a plan, it's all going to go to the deficit. I mean, but Bob Hines, this brings up a very, very, again, honest look of where do we draw that line? Where do we go? Austerity offset money versus the role of the federal government, which even Republicans agree with, that it is there to provide this type of long-term sustaining relief and support to those who have been affected by disasters such as this. So we need a disaster fund that is always there, that is funded. 
If we don't use it in one year, fine. We don't have to put as much money in it the next year for the next budget. But we have got to have a fun program, just as Alan said, that when it hits. Now, I don't know, I don't know what you do when the governor says, don't help me. But, you know, I guess you let the governor do what the governor wants to do. And but, the people in the state do what they want to do yeah, with the governor later exactly. on. Carl Tubin. Well, First of all, uh, FEMA was there right away um, after the Oklahoma um, disaster. Plus, the president went out there, and the, and the governor <coughs> thanked the president for being there. It was reported today that FEMA has been giving money to people that in need, and that's, that's already happening. Um, I, I watched a lot of television this morning. Uh, as far as your bridge, uh, it was projected that they would have a temporary bridge up within five weeks you know, to take care of the traffic going uh, north and south. But you know what? That five weeks is forever. Yeah, I know, I know. But that's a whole other discussion. Now, you know, when, when, when we look at the tragedy of Oklahoma, though, and, and we and we look at the ability of those who were directly affected, and and, and and this one's a little personal because of the fact that you know I was affected by a natural disaster. I lost my entire house in a hurricane back in 2004. You know I chose not to take federal assistance. We had a great insurance policy and a great insurance company. However, there are those that do need this, and to arbitrarily just go out and say, no, we're not going to take it, seems a little bit odd to me. But, Denise Kraft, you know, the idea that Alan Moore had as far as creating a sustainable, separate fund, untouchable, of creating disaster funding to support these efforts, why has this why has this been elusive on the Hill? Why has this idea just gone by the wayside? I don't think anybody's ever brought it up. I mean, there are two cases that I know of that are similar to this. The first is on the environmental side, is that when you have a spill and, and, and you know... And you have the National Pollution Fund Center. the National Pollution Fund Center. So there is an example that you can do this. And, and people did this because of what happened with uh, OPA and OPA 90 and, and what happened. OPA being the Oil Pollution Act after Exxon Valdez. Right. right. You do have an example, so they could do that, but they've had a lot of difficulty with the infrastructure bank. I mean, that's something that Secretary LaFleur was pushing, so with the administration, people were saying they didn't want to do that. And what's my hope is that when you start looking at all these bridges that are collapsing, you're starting to look at all these emergencies that are occurring, you've got to start talking about but, the bank. But Bob, but Bob, do you think that Republicans would support a similar situation, which they did back in 1990, in the creation of the National Pollution Fund, is there enough reasoning now that somebody on the Hill should take the reins of this and go, we need to create a National Disaster Fund Center? Well, I think that given the fact that these things are going to continue to occur, it makes eminent good sense on a bipartisan basis to fund a program has disaster relief money in it immediately available to any governor who needs it, any organization, any state that needs it. And, you know, obviously, uh, Sandy was a huge thing. It's, and uh, the, the, the more uh, the city, the more city uh, in Oklahoma is not nearly as large, but it is significant. And we need to be able to, to immediately provide money to put things back together, to get people back in some kind of protect, protected place. They have to be able to rebuild 
their town, their city. They have to fix their bridge. They have to do whatever has to be done. Those those are those are the kind of the basic things of government. That's that's what government's supposed to do. And and nothing is simple. We, we've already talked about FEMA. FEMA has got disaster funds, and there are various other disaster funds that are, that are dedicated to certain specific kinds of uses. And so this fund should be set up, I and it should be carefully drawn and thoughtfully drawn, so that you're you you you, you are reserving these funds for those major disasters and ones that are utterly unpredictable. Uh, floods in the Skagit River are predictable. They happen every two years, come like clockwork, and, and FEMA and the Corps of Engineers have been over the years funded. They handle that. We don't, we've never gone to Congress for special funds for those because they happen all the time. So that, that fund shouldn't be used for those things. They shouldn't be siphoned up for those things. They should be reserved for things like the Oklahoma situation. Alan Moore, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, just lest we think we're creating a brilliant new idea here. Um, FEMA. You mean we're not? No, FEMA, oh my gets, God. FEMA gets money every year. The president asks for money. The, the Congress has an opportunity to say yes or no to the funds. I was just checking on this issue. Um, and uh, the president's request for 2013 was about $5 billion for disaster relief. Um, I don't know how that money, how that amount of money stacks up historically, whether whether in the press of limited budgets in recent years, we've lowballed what we've provided. And just because the president asks does not mean that that's what the Congress gives. My hunch is that the Congress has been a little stingy on meeting the request, and people say, well, if we have to do an emergency request, we'll do it. But but it's not that it's a new idea, and we don't. Nobody here knows the history well enough to know whether we've been lowballing lately. My guess is we have. The key is this is one we can't lowball. Having to come back and ask for emergency help time after time uh, is a is a really dumb way to to Absolutely. run the budget. Absolutely. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, we've got about nine minutes left. Uh, actually, about seven minutes left. So we're going to do a quick round of Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the news, innuendo, rumor going around the Beltway. Uh, Alan Moore, quickly, tell me a story. All right. Well, you know, poor old uh, Mitt Romney uh, uh, was was pilloried often for having a personal net worth of something over uh, $200 million and being out of touch. Um, and people wonder why you would want a, a person so out of touch to be uh, – uh, the president, or in a, you know, for that matter, in a very senior position. Well, <laughs> irony of ironies, we, we've now got, we've now got a, a candidate for a cabinet position who makes Romney look like nothing. Somebody whose net worth is about ten times. Who's that? What Romney says this is Penny Pritzker, nominee to be Secretary of Commerce, a net worth in, up in the, the neighborhood of two billion dollars. And and, uh, and more power to her. She inherited well, and she uh, uh, and, well, apparently. And, and married well, and has uh, has been able to hold on to uh, a lot of money, even though there's a lot of fights going on among her and family members. But the, but the most amazing thing about about this was this last week when they when they came back after her hearing in the in the Senate Commerce Committee, which has jurisdiction, discovered. Oh, we need to make a, we need to make a correction on the financials. 
we were $80 million short on reported income over the last 10 years. This, <laughs> we got hedge fund uh, investors having private meetings at the White House with health care aides, and now we've got a multi-billionaire who overlooked $80 million in income uh, taken over the Commerce Department. Those one percenters are showing up all over the place. Amazing, amazing. Congressman Al, tell me a story. <clears throat> My story is Alan has just turned into a Democrat. There we go. Nice. Bob Hines, tell me a quick story. The, um, the Republican Party in Virginia has nominated a very interesting uh, team of uh, candidates. Led by Bob Cuccinelli. No, his name isn't Bob. It's Ken. Ken Cuccinelli. Ken Cuccinelli. Bob McDonald, Ken Cuccinelli. They're not, they're not, they're not even close. Yeah. And the lieutenant governor um, is uh, is a um, a minister, a um, a gentleman uh, well to the right of anybody that I know. The lieutenant governor candidate. Lieutenant governor candidate. Yeah. Nominated. And it proves something to me that I think if the Republicans keep it up, uh, deciding to pick their candidates by convention, which means. The people who are really, really, really interested in something, rather than a primary where you have a more a broad-based electorate choosing the candidate, you're likely to get people like the Republicans have got. And it is, um, you know, Virginia is a state that has traditionally been thought to be relatively red as opposed to blue, you know, Republican rather than Democrat. It seems to me that the Republicans are... A, basically putting themselves in a position that they shouldn't be in if they're smart. Obviously, they're not. What they have done, they have, they have nominated candidates who are way to the right of the general population, which, fit, which fits perfectly into the more right conservative viewpoint without regard to the fact that what might be the best way to win elections. If the Republicans keep doing that, you know, we may end up like the Whigs. And I, as a Republican, hope that doesn't happen. But the, Demo the Democrats ought to be awfully happy because probably there will be people who wouldn't even consider voting Democratic who will now be looking in Virginia saying, gee whiz, at least the Democrats have people who, who make a lot more sense than the, than the Republicans do. And it really, really and bothers Considering the Democratic nominee, that's scary. Yeah, uh, I in the interest of time, Denise Carl, I'll give you guys stories next week. But... On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krepp, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore, special thanks to Dr. Alice Crowther for joining us today. This show is produced as always. Great form. Special thanks our producer, Alyssa Bonk. We'll be back next Tuesday live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Boy, is this the place to be. Absolutely. I'm your host, moderator Justin Russell. See you next week. Bye-bye.
Oh,